Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 160 of the Intercooler Podcast with Dan Prosser, and my co-host Andrew Frankel. Now this week we're talking about British and European sports cars and beyond actually with American powertrains. This is mostly because Andrew uh, recently drove and has written about for the intercooler an AC Cobra, a proper one, a real one. Um, That story is on the intercooler now um, if you want to read it. This it doesn't happen so much these days or at all actually but it used to be commonplace. It used to happen all the time. And the Cobra was probably the best example of it. Um, but we get stuck into all of them. There are European cars, British uh, sports cars, even Australian cars. There are road cars and racing cars. So it's a good meaty topic. Um, before we start, I have to remind you all, please, to rate and review the podcast. And while you're doing it, just hit the follow button or the subscribe button on whichever app you're using. That really helps us. So Uh, Enjoy the episode and many, many thanks for listening. There is a very great tradition of European sports cars having whacking great American motors stuffed into them, almost always Detroit V8s. Um, And we're doing this now because just this week we published a story by you, Andrew, about, I think it is probably still the best example of this, particularly a British car with a thumping great American V8. And it has to be the AC Cobra. It does. It does. And um, I was lucky enough to go and drive what I think is the, if not the ultimate Cobra, because that makes it sound like the fastest, and I think the best Cobra, which was a late car. So it had the rack and pinion steering and it had the coil springs. Um, and if you wanted that, you had to have the really big V8, apart from, I think, 27 cars that got sold in Europe, which came with a smaller, lighter, better, frankly, um, 4.7-litre Ford V8. And, yeah, I just went and drove this thing, um, thanks to our friends at Girardo & Co., and was and was struck once again by just how harmonious that combination is. And it's a bit strange, isn't it? Because you think of sort of, you know, light, delicate English sports cars and these big, brutal, you know, Detroit iron bent eight motors from over there and yet they just work and you only have to look at how many have been done and still yeah there are still some that are still being done to this day to know just how well that works i also think it's very instructive we were having this conversation weren't we just before we came on end that i and i thought about this quite hard i wouldn't say this definitively but i offhand can't think of any american cars which have a european engine in them doesn't happen that way, does it? No, and it's and, and what is so interesting is when you think of great engines, you know, you think of, you know, the quad cam four valves per cylinder V twelve masterpieces mm. from Lamborghini and Ferrari and all that lot. But actually, you'd think the Americans would be, you know, desperate for that stuff, but they're not because what they know and what they've always known is that 
actually out there in the real world, there's very little better than a big chunk mm. of American mm. V8. Mm. We'll come on to that. We'll explain yeah. why. We'll explain why it's a one-way street, why um, European car makers um, have adopted US V8, but also why um, fitting a US V8 into a British sports car has been um, the, the sort of way of things over the years. Um, there's so much to discuss here. The, I mean, the, the AC Cobra, it's worth just telling the story of that car a little bit because um, I hadn't really heard much about it until you wrote your piece and I read it earlier this week um, because it was almost, the, the, it almost wasn't an AC Cobra at all. It was almost an Aston Cobra, I suppose. Well, I mean, so Carol Shelby, um, who everyone will know as portrayed by Matt Damon in that uh, quite good, actually, Le Mans 66 mm. or Ford versus Ferrari, depending on which continent you're on, um, movie. Um, he wanted to, he held a personal grudge against Ferrari. Um, he's not the only he's, one. Well, he's not, absolutely not. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's the, the same reason created the GT40, which we'll get on to shortly. Um, but he wanted to create a car which could go and duff up Ferraris in GT racing because things like the short wheelbase and, you know, and then the 250 GTO were, were utterly dominant. Um, and so what he, his idea was to go to Aston Martin and say, and take, let's get your DB3S race car, which had come second at Le Mans three times in the 1950s, and we'll stick a big American V8 in and go and duff up Ferrari. Won't that be fun? To which Aston Martin replied, well, yes, but the car isn't in production anymore. We've shut the race team and we're already drowning in orders for the DB4. So for the best of them in the world, go away. Mm. Um, so that's when Shelby went to AC um, and basically did a deal whereby AC would provide um, the AC Ace body and chassis, um, which would then go over to America, which would then have the V8s put in them. And that's where the Cobra came from. Started in 1962, ended in 1967, and you know started with this very simple um, car with a 260 cubic inch um, V8 in it, and ended up with these monster seven liter side oiler, brutal things in them, and um, you know they were incredibly effective um, in racing and great fun to drive, and yeah, a legend was born. I, I just wonder if there's a car in the world. Which more replicas are, have been built of than the oh. AC Cobra? I mean, there must be many times more Cobra replicas out there than there are ever Cobras. I don't think. Yeah, well, when you when you see one, you assume it's a rep, don't you? It's got to that point you just assume of, it's a rep. Yeah, because I think that there were fewer than a thousand genuine Cobras, and by genuine Cobras, I don't mean sort of Mark IVs that were built by the company that had the rights to the AC name in the nineteen eighties. Mm. Or anything else, because some they, you know, they might well say they're, they're genuine Cobras because they were technically built by AC cars, but it's not the same company. It weren't built by Shelby American. So you know, I, I, of the genuine Shelby Cobras built between whenever it was sixty two and sixty seven, I think there were fewer than a thousand. Mm. Gosh, and that yeah. one that you drove, I mean, it sounds like it's got the perfect technical specification. Yeah, the rackety steering, coil springs, and the yeah. not the and, not the uh, enormous V eight. Yeah. And also, the, but the more delicate, prettier bodywork. More delicate, prettier bodywork. And the thing about that enormous V8, it was, it was heavy. And also, you know, don't forget you're putting, you know, a seven-liter V8 into an English sports car chassis yeah. that was designed in the early 1950s. Never, mm. ever designed to cope with that kind of power. Now, to be fair, I haven't driven a seven-liter Cobra. Um, they may be brilliant. I suspect they are point-and-squirt machines of the, of the, of the first order. Um, but, yeah, certainly the one that I drove was... I, I guess what surprised me about it was it just... Okay, sophisticated is not the right word, but it wasn't this sort of meat and two veg machine I was expecting it to be. Um, it well, it rode better than I thought it was going to be... It was going to. Uh, it steered massively better than I thought it was going to. And, you know, and it's so... You look at you think AC Cobra and you think big, butch, bold. It's not as tiny. It's smaller than an MX-5. It's a tiny little thing. Mm. So you Gosh. can really thread it and... Um, it's a, it was just a joyous car. I just really, really... I mean, it wasn't, you know, massively capable. Um, but that's not really the point of those cars, is it? You're not looking mm. to have your mind blown by their, you know, their technical ability. No. You just want a car which knows what it's for, um, responds the right, kind of, the right kind of way, and puts a massive smile on your face. And it did all that in spades. Mm. By the way, a quick shout-out to Olgan, who photographed the Cobra. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, from where Girardot are in Oxfordshire... 
you could get into the mountains, but it's going to take an entire day. Um, so what we do is we find some nice Oxfordshire country lanes near um, near Girardo's place. And what you therefore need is a very skilled photographer to make a reasonable location um, look spectacular, make the photos really look gorgeous. Um, and that is exactly what Olgan did at Cars and Colour on Instagram, if you want to go check out his images. But um, he, he did such a great job of making that car look spectacular. Um, and, you know, it's just as we're talking, it's just occurred to me that because Enzo Ferrari was such an arse, <laughs> we, we got the AC Cobra, we got the Ford GT, which we'll come on to. We got Lamborghini. Yeah. If he was an agreeable yes. man... The, yes. the sports car scene would look very different today, wouldn't it? Thank you for being an ass. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. What a contribution. Never mind Ferrari itself. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll, and we'll get on to Bizzarini and Iso and that sort of yeah. thing. All of, all of which came about by, you know, as a result of disgruntled former Ferrari employees. <laughs> it's great. That's brilliant. Thank you, uh, Enzo. So, okay, the Ford GT40. Now, it's a confusing, convoluted story, this one. Um, how British was that car? Very. But even you would even declare that the successful GT40s, the later ones that did no. all the winning. No, no. Mm. I think I think there is a dividing line. So, yeah. so, so the so the story starts with a completely British car um, called the Lola Mark VI, which nobody's ever heard of. Um, but it was the sort of prototype GT40, and it was raced by David Hobbs and Richard Atwood at Le Mans in 1963, and it was doing pretty well despite the fact the car was completely undeveloped. I think one of the drivers hadn't even driven it by the time they first got in it. Uh, but this was a mid-engined V8 monocoque car, I think the first of its kind ever to race at Le Mans. And when Ford decided, having been led up the garden path by Ferrari, that... Um, they wanted to go and hit Enzo where it hurts um, and go and beat him at Le Mans. That was the project that they took over and gave to um, to John Wire and to Eric Broadley and to Roy Lum um, to Ford Advanced Vehicles in Slough. Mm. And they took a British engineered and designed car and worked on it and evolved it into the Ford GT40. And so when that car first appeared, it was designed in the uk it was built in the uk it was developed in the uk okay um you know ford would have paid the bills um for turning the lola mark 6 into a gt40 but the gt40 to me those early cars at least um were british cars Mm. Uh, and i and i actually think that you know they they should be seen as such right up to probably until now see the the mark 4 which was the car that won in uh, 1967 uh, was a complete was essentially a completely new car, uh, and that was an American car. And I think that was sufficiently done with American input for for that to be regarded as an American car. But the GT40, you know, when we saw you know with some we we see them racing at Goodwood or whatever, you know, to me, what you're looking at are British cars powered by American engines, paid for by American dollars. I think that's fair. I mean, mm. sure, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, many of our American listeners might think that that's, you know, quite a, a British view of it. And, 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 and maybe that is so. But I don't think so. I mean, certainly that's my understanding of the facts. Um, and so now I would regard that as a British car with an American engine. So it was a bit, a, yeah, a bit later on, I think in 1964, that the project was handed over to Shelby. And yeah, it was later than that. Was it later than that? But yeah. that's, that's, when, that's when the GT40 one Le Mans all those years in a row. Yeah, so, um, they, so one Le Mans from 66 to 69 in a row. Did, yeah. yeah, but that said, having not won it, in, having gone and not won it um, in 64 and 65. Mm. Um, so it took them a bit of time. Um, and yes, and it became an entirely American operation and, you know, and, and, and the rest is history. But the origins of the car, yeah. the car itself, w- was essentially British. Mega. Um, yeah. So... There are so many other British cars that we should mention here before we get onto European cars, and actually we're going to look beyond Europe. Um, but there were other ACs. Um, there was the Jensen Interceptor and FF with yeah, cars and V8s. I mean, in the sixties, this was just. I mean, can, can we just talk a little bit about why this happened? Uh, mm. And there's a great example 
of why all these British manufacturers, and I've got a little list of them down here. Um, you know, there's Gordon Keeble, there was TVR in the 60s, there was Allard, there was Bristol, there was Jensen, there was AC, there was Sunbeam, you know, all these people mm. all decided that they were going to get American engines in their cars. And if I can explain by way of example, one manufacturer that didn't decide to do that was Aston Martin. And what they mm. decided to do was create their own V8 instead. And it almost killed them. <laughs> um, mm. You know, they started working on this engine in the early 1960s. It didn't get in the car until the end of that decade. It was so late. It was so, its development was so excruciatingly drawn out and difficult. I mean, to this day, that is the last engine that Aston Martin has developed in-house by themselves to make it into production. Mm. Literally. Mm. They only did two engines. You know, the engines that, you know, in the DB2s and that sort of thing were all originally designed by Lagonda on the W.O. Bentley. Then they did the straight six that went to the DB4, 5 and 6. Then they did the V8, which went into the, uh, originally into the DBS and stayed in production actually right into the 21st century and the very, very last of the sort of Virage Vantage line. And that's it. Because engines are absolute nightmares. Mm. Even back then, when there were no really any emissions to worry about or anything else like that, they are so complicated. They are so difficult to get right. And if you're Gordon Keeble or some other Allard or some other tiny little concern, and you suddenly realising that, you know, you need a big, fast car, because that's frankly where the money is, and so you need a big, fast engine, well... You could try and design one yourself, but it will kill you. Mm. Or you can go to the, to the Americans, and they all did it. Chevrolet did it, Ford did it, Chrysler did it. And they will sell you an engine yeah. which is simple, reliable, powerful, and above all, cheap. So the question is, yes. why wouldn't yeah, yeah. you? And well, that's exactly the, case, the point, the, the, the crux of all of this. Why has this happened this way? Well, as much as anything, it's because... Chrysler, Ford, Chevy, they make their engines readily available. You can just go and buy one, crate engines. Yeah. It's part of their business. Yes. You can't do that with an AMG V8 or a BMW engine or whatever. You need a, you need a special relationship with those manufacturers if you want access to their powertrains. Yeah. Anyone can go and buy a crate engine from, the, from Detroit. So it's, it's just so straightforward. Um, and as you've said, excellent power and torque, great soundtrack, cheap, reliable, tunable, strong... Yeah. It just, it just makes sense on so many levels, doesn't it? So that's and, why it's happened this way. And, okay, they don't have, you know, multi-valve cylinder heads and, mm. you know, twin overhead camshafts and, you know, six-down draft carburettors and V12s and everything else, which is what all the sort of, you know, European purists, you know, looking down their nose at mm. this American iron would, you know, would point out. Uh, there's only one question. Do they do the job? And anybody mm. who has sat behind the wheel of a car with a big, throaty, thundering American V8 in it will will know the answer to that question. If they absolutely get the job done. They're terrific mm. motors. Mm. Um, just on Aston Martin, yeah, the the four point seven and the four point three liter V8 in the previous Vantage, yeah, where did that come? Where did that come from? What was that based on? If not Jaguar, it is a Jaguar. Hmm. So Jaguar, it's the Jaguar, the Jaguar V8, hmm. and the V12 Smaller. is a is, is, is a Ford derived engine. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean I've Gosh. written a book on this. Um, yeah, yeah, you we, know, we, I they, know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You're an authority. Uh, now, of course, you know Aston Martin would absolutely point out. I think I think they once told me that the only thing that their V8 had in common with the Jaguar V8 was the sump plug. Yeah, but even okay. so, it doesn't. It, to me, that's not the point because if you evolve hmm. and you evolve and you evolve. You know, that's great. It becomes Trigger's Broom, but it doesn't, you, you, you don't, you know, suddenly get rid of where it came from no. and what it's based upon. No, no. It's and you can design, never ever say that you started that engine from scratch yourself with no prior reference to anything else. No, no, no. Yeah. No, so I think you're absolutely right. Um, okay, there's another batch of uh, cars that we need to discuss here, and this gets a little bit complicated. And as an example, a Marcos, right, with a Rover V8. Um, oh. And I know you want to make this point. I do want to a make Rover, this point. A Rover V8, isn't that a British engine? 
No, of course it isn't. <laughs> of course it God. isn't a British engine. It's a Buick. Yeah. This was an en- this was an engine, and it's a, it was an absolutely cracking engine. It was an engine that was built and developed by Buick, um, crucially made out of aluminium iron, not cast. Yeah. Sorry, aluminium alloy, not cast iron. So it was light. Um, and Rover, who I think they per- first put it in the P5B, um, got this engine. Um, you know, rebadged it, and you know, and 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 you know, it was powering you know TVRs decades later. Mm, mm. Um, but it's not a British engine. Mm. It's an American any more than a GT40 is an American car. The Rover V8 is not a British. It's not a British. It's not a British engine. Um, the other point I would make out, out, and you may think that I'm taking my development theory a little bit far here, is that that V8. Somebody came along, chopped two cylinders off it, fitted it with four valve heads and four overhead camshafts, and put it in, amongst other things, the Jaguar XJ220 and the Rover 6 and the, and the Metro 6R4. Mm. So, technically, they've got American yeah. engines in them too. Yes. It's changed so much, and, you're, and yeah, you are yeah. so far down the line. I think the only engine which I think most people presume to be of American origin, but isn't, was the Rolls-Royce V8. You know, the big, which became the Bentley V8, which started life in 1959 um, and ended with the death of the Mulsanne a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, you know, that big six, well, it started as a 6.3, then went to six and three quarter litres, not originally normally aspirated, but then became turbocharged. That, everybody looks at that engine and they think, well, it's enormous, and it's a VA, and it's got you know it's got push rods in. It's got a single camshaft in the middle of the bank. You know, that is absolutely straight out of the American um, engine rulebook. So people kind of think that's where it came from. It's not that actually is a purely Rolls Royce engine. Mm. Yeah. So, okay. That's a point worth yeah. making. Um, right. There's one more on the British side that we need to discuss, and it's I think the most recent example that I can think of. Um, and it's the MGZT V8, um, which that was the version that was. I can think of a more <laughs> recent one. Okay, all right. Well, let's just tick off this one. Okay. So this was the this was the front wheel drive car that was re-engineered to be rear wheel drive, which it's is one of the most brilliantly nuts decisions this industry's ever made. It just it's unheard of, really, isn't it? it I a mean, Honda developed front drive yeah. platform. I mean, yeah, with a transverse engine driving the front wheels. And they go, no, yeah. actually, let's do, yeah. let's put a north-south Ford V8 in it and get it to drive the rear wheels. I mean, just, just the very thought. I mean, I mean, fair play to them for doing it, but it was... Yeah. How many did they think they'd sell? I don't know. How did they find space for a prop shaft in a car that was never designed to have one running down the middle of it? 260 yeah, well, horsepower, so it wasn't yeah. massively powerful. Um, I, did you, you must have driven one. Oh, was it do you know, I had, I had, do you know, I really hope that Anthony Reid is listening to this, um, <laughs> ex-touring car driver Anthony Reid, because the first, I've, I've driven them two or three times. The first time I ever drove one was I turned up at Mallory Park where they were having some little local launch and it was absolutely honking it down with rain. Uh, and Anthony was the sort of pro driver who'd been brought along uh, and we had one of these sorts of ducks and drake scenes. But actually, I just ended up out on the track following him round um this you know this little boy's about 1.3 mile circuit um and we both spent basically all of the lap the entire lap as sideways as sideways can be and we i can just remember at the end of it coming back in after how many laps of this insanity and coming back in and just both of us just hooting and hooting with laughter Mm. the car was (laughs) it was so progressive um it was almost unspinnable there didn't seem to be an angle you could get it to from which it wouldn't return. I certainly never did. It was just, they were such good fun. Mm. Such That's brilliant, cool. brilliant fun. Uh, That's I mean, cool. yeah, the, all sorts of compromises, you know. I mean, I remember because, you know, there, essentially there was a gearbox where there was never a gearbox meant to be. Um, the driver's footwell was like half the size that it should have been. And obviously mm. there was this massive transmission tunnel going through. And then there was the diff under the ring. You know, and, and so the car was. I'd, I'd, Someone will know how much of that car needed to be re-engineered to date that engine. Yeah. It was a brilliantly nuts project. It's just insane that they ever said yes to it, wasn't it? Yeah. 
they must have cost so much money, and as as you say, they were never going to sell very many of them. And they but and they did cool in the state as well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, fantastic, oh, brilliant, happy days. Uh, can I give uh, you my more recent one? Oh, go on then. TVR Griffith. No, 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 no. That was on my list because it doesn't count. <laughs> it doesn't count. What? Because it doesn't exist. Because yes. they've only built one. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to mention it. And the point I was going to make is that these days, if you want an American V8 in a new car, it's got to be an American car, hasn't it? There aren't any other examples apart from the TVR Griffith. And if it happens, fantastic. Then you will be able to pretend you're in the 60s or 70s and buy a British sports car with a oh, there must be, great There American must be V8. something in which someone has slung an LS3 or something like that. Mm. People are going to come on. People are going to get back to us and they can say, you've forgotten this out and the other. Yeah, they will. They will. Great. But I, I hope they do. Um, because there, there must be a more recent example than the MG ZTV8. Um. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Can I mention another car? Which is, it was actually one of the most memorable driving experiences I've had, and actually for all the right reasons, of a British car with an American engine in it. And I don't, I can't remember what version of it I drove. Have you ever driven an Ultima? No. The first Ultima I drove, I only drove it because I happened to be there and somebody said, want to have a go. It was at the Nürburgring. Oh, God. You know, yeah. so Ultima, I'm sure everybody knows, but, you know, there is a reason that, you know, when McLaren were developing the F1, um, and I think, actually, I'm not sure about this, but I think, didn't Gordon Murray, when he was doing the GMA T50, didn't he start with an Ultima as well? But certainly Don't with know. the F1, there were two test mules called Albert and Edward, um, and they were both <laughs> Ultimas. Uh, and there's a reason for that. You know, these things are brilliant machines. They are, they're basically racing cars, but they are road legal. Um, I think the one I drove had a G50 Porsche gearbox in it. Um, with some, I'm guessing, Ford V8 in it. And I can, I can remember, I can remember. I think I was out there in a 911 or some description, like I'm getting this thing and heading off around the Nordschleifer in it and just thinking this is the most fun in the world. Wow. It was so fabulously good. It was, it was really, really fast, but it just felt so sorted. And it's one of those cars where the chassis and the power of the engine just seemed completely suited to each other. It didn't feel overpowered or under-engined or, 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 or anything. It just felt right. Um, and it felt like a very well-developed, um, very, very cool car. Um, and and I, I think they're still making them, and I just don't think enough people are, are aware of them. So there you go. Mm. Um, so we're not just talking British cars, because there's a whole world beyond, um, literally. Are we to, before we cross the channel, go on. Are, are we, are we going to do racing cars at all? We can do, yeah. So this, is now a good time to do, do, do racing cars? Are there only a couple but, I want to mention? Is the Lola T70 one of them? Funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, do you know, there, there, there were two types of car I was going to mention. Um, and the T70 was, well, one particular T70 was part of one of those. Now, so I was going to mention, um, you know, the entire formula of racing car that was Formula 5000 mm. that sprang up um, in the 60s and 70s. 
And this was a, you know, talk about cheap power. This was basically a single seat racing car, effectively a Formula One car, but with an American engine. So they had similar power to Formula One cars, but they cost fractions um, to run. And the only reason that they weren't as quick as Formula One cars was that they were clearly quite a bit heavier. Um, but there were, it was an amazing series with these fabulous cars. And, you know, most of the top drivers drove them at one stage or another. And the, and the other series I was going to mention is, you know, let's not forget Can-Am. Mm. Um, you know, some of the most extraordinary, most powerful, most visually startling cars that have ever been built um, came about through English manufacturers, um, most notably, I guess, um, McLaren and Lola, going off to compete in this North American championship with simply enormous Chevrolet, usually Chevrolet V8s in them, you know, which mm. went up to, you know, I think nine point, you know, the last of the McLarens had 9.2 litre Chevy engines with 800 horsepower. Oh, flipping neck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and these are the wow. most wonderful, thundering, mm. uh, big behemoths, big bangers. I mean, they used to, Denny Hume in an MAF used to, when they were testing at Goodwood, so after they stopped racing there, um, and obviously Bruce McLaren very sadly died in an MAD at Goodwood. But I think Denny Hume would use to lap Goodwood in about 103 in mm, one of these things. God. Now, if you think that anything that gets under 130 can be regarded as, I mean, you know, if you got a, I don't know, a car like a Porsche 911 Turbo, I, I think you'd be pretty happy to lap Goodwood in a 125, 126 in that. And over half a century ago, these, mm. without any downforce at all, these ridiculous Can-Am cars with their monster American engines were going around in very little more than a minute. That is Boom. unbelievable. Superb. Flipping anyway, it. sorry. I, thought, I just thought I'd get that in there. <laughs> no, uh, that's good. Yes, good. Um, where are we going now? Can we hop over the channel then? So there is a whole group of European sports cars, supercars with enormous American V8s in them. Where do we want to start? I mean, we've already mentioned them, haven't we, in our Enzo chat a little bit earlier on, but um, mostly Italian. Um, Iso, Di Tommaso, Bizzarini. Yeah, so I think, Bizzar- I think Bizzarini is interesting because, you know, Giotto Bizzarini, who is still alive, he must be a long way into his 90s by now. Um, you know, this was the man who, you know, was the principal architect of the Ferrari 250 GTO. Yeah. And the short wheelbase. The man who designed the Lamborghini V12, which survived from the launch of the first Lamborghini, the 350 GT in 63 or 64, I don't know, right up until the end of the... I always get this wrong. Murcielago? Murcielago? Which one is it? Either of those. Either of those. We're not fussy. Um, And he went off and did his own car. Uh, I mean, basically, it was... Uh, he teamed up with ESO um, and created this thing called the uh, 5300 GT, the Bitsarini 5300 GT, which was based, which is also based on the ESO Grifo. And I've driven one, in fact, I've driven two, and they're the most amazing things. They look, if you don't know what the car I'm, looking, I'm talking about, go and look it up. It is the lowest, sleekest, coolest looking thing. Um, with this uh, with this V8 engine mounted so far back in the chassis, it is a genuinely mid-engine car, even though the driver sits behind the engine. And you know, had they had the money, had they had the development budget um, that you know Ferrari had had, I've no doubt at all that they could have gone on and you know become a major major presence. But they never. <sighs> They never had the resources. And, and, and I think that one of the, probably the only problem with all these cars is they are still regarded to an extent as mongrels. Mm. They're not. Mm. And, it, you know, if you think of, I have, now I haven't driven a Pantera, um, but if you think of it, a Tommaso Pantera, which was around at the same time as the Ferrari Boxer and the Lamborghini Countach and all these other Italian blue bloods, Maserati Bora and so on. Everyone was always a bit sniffy about the Pantera. Yeah, there's a because it, because it wasn't a proper car because it mm. didn't have a proper engine in it. Mm. And I haven't driven one. Maybe they're rubbish. Um, but that, but, but but that idea itself is just bullshit. Frankly, yes, um, it really is. If the car does the job, the car does the job, and that should be the end of it. 
Um, but I think I think that is the reason that all these cars, and there are so many of them, and I think one of the other things that you know we can say about these cars is although so many of them popped up, very few actually lasted. Very mm. few um, you know, fostered an entire line of cars which carried on um, because th- th- they always just seem like sort of nice ideas. But ultimately, if you're going to spend a large amount of money on a great-looking car that goes very fast, people wanted the whole thing and they wanted that V12 engine or, mm. you know. Um, and so, you know, looking down at some of the lists here, you know, Sidney Allard and some of the cars that he made, well, they, I don't know how long they lasted, but they made very few. Gordon Keeble, I think they made 100 cars. Um, I mean, Jensen did better than most um, with the Interceptor and the four-wheel drive um, FF. But even that didn't last um, that too long. Sunbeam Tiger, two series of that, didn't seem to continue with those. I mean, just so many of these things that came and sounded... And even the, the Europeans, you know, Facel Vega. Mm. I mean, some of the coolest, most stylish, most wonderful cars that ever got built. Um Monteverdi. Do you remember? Do you know about Monteverdi's? The Monteverdi, well, H A I, which I guess I produce. You pronounce hi. Hi. Hmm. Um, I mean, unbelievable things. But you know, the Isos and the and, and the Bitsarinis, but they never, they never kind of went anywhere. It's there. There must have been a sniffiness about the engines be. in these things. You know, yeah. an uncouth Detroit yeah. V8. It's not the same as a. No. And a modern V12, fine. But when you're running these cars as classics 50, 60 years later, a tough-as-old boots, reliable, durable American V8 is going to yeah. be much more straightforward, isn't With it? With a, a tightly as... strung, complicated... Yeah, particularly as it, will come, as it will come attached to a tough-as-old boots, strong-as-you-like, you know, American Borg-Warner gearbox. Yeah. And they're a bit agricultural, a bit slow, but, you know... It'll work. <laughs> It'll work. Uh, and if it ever stops working, it'll cost buttons to repair. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, every time I've got into one of these things, I've always just been struck by how well they do the job, just how well they work and how much fun they have. And yeah, I just don't see that there is, for anything other than pure snob value, any great argument for saying that, um, you know, oh, a car has to have a homegrown engine in it. Mm. Mm. It, yeah, it's it's pure snobbery. Um, now, it's not just British and European cars that have made very, very good use of American V8s because the Australians were doing it for a very long time. Not anymore, sadly, but there's, a, 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 again, a good long tradition of Australian, um, mostly saloon cars, but also coupes and utes with enormous do you know you American sounded quite V8. australian then when you went utes utes it's the kind of way there's the kind of way you went up at the end the upward inflection ute yeah. there you go ute. Um, and have you seen my ute sorry <laughs> and then of course because of those australian cars they were or well, certainly british badged cars voxels voxels vxrs yeah so does that what, count as what, a more recent the, example what's the than maddest the one of those you've driven have you ever driven because I haven't. Have you ever driven a Maloo? No. No, no, never driven one of the Utes. But I did drive the VXR8 Bathurst and the GTS. I think maybe they were almost interchangeable. But they were the supercharged ones with the 6.2-litre Chevy V8 um, with almost 600 horsepower. So a massive amount of go. Um, and, you know, I, I was thinking about this earlier, and I, I think, God, maybe I'm contradicting myself but i think i was sniffy about them maybe not because of what the engines were but because when you drove one alongside a european super saloon uh, like an m5 or an e63 or something they just seemed a bit less civilized less sophisticated and they were actually yeah but, but they're usually half the price too aren't they that's right they're half the price um and th- you know thinking about them now whacking great six point something liter engine with almost 600 horsepower maybe a manual gearbox not expensive to buy. Um, those VXR8s, they were fast. They were fun to drive. Loads of character. They were comfy. Um, I mean, they gobbled through fuel, of course, but otherwise they were pretty easy to live with. You know, I see loads of appeal and attraction in those cars now. And I bet um, they're cheap. Yeah, I bet they are cheap. The, the one thing about them is that the 
I think there are probably a few reasons for this, but you would see the power output. So the VXR8, the supercharged VXR8 had about 580 horsepower, but it never quite felt it. Never quite felt it. I think maybe very long gearing, maybe the torque delivery, particularly Pretty heavy car too, I imagine. Heavy cars, yeah, particularly if we're a bit more used to um, turbocharged engines nowadays. Um, nevertheless, you know, and the, the example that leaps out to me is, and this, this is not a like-for-like like comparison, but you'll see where I'm going, the Mercedes AMG SLS Black Series. So that also had a 6.2-litre V8. That had 620 horsepower, so a bit more. Um, clearly a lighter car. But honestly, the difference in the ferocity of the acceleration, that AMG yeah. goes Maniac. like stink. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And yet the VXR8, similar power, same capacity, same engine configuration, nothing like the same performance. Okay. Can, um, I, can I just put a, well, I don't know, a question mark, but, or at least ask a question about the about these cars claimed to be because you i don't i'm not i don't imagine for a moment that you are claiming that a vxr8 is a british car no no i think that's an important point to make so what do you say are you saying it's an australian car yeah so the aussies have been doing the same thing buying but, in but, but, okay, so, but okay so what i don't know is i mean obviously you know holden mm. is a general motors owned or was does holden even still exist i think it does doesn't it but they don't make cars in australia anymore it's yeah. a general motors owned brand so are these cars actually cars that originated in America, went to Australia, and then ended up in the UK, and therefore, in the same way as I'm saying the GT40 is a British car, are we not actually saying that these cars, if you look at their origins, are essentially American cars? But aren't the things like the Monaro, for instance, isn't that a purely well, Australian car? No, because that then became the Pontiac GTO, didn't it? You tell the me. Re- I don't yeah, know. it did. The reborn okay. version. They rebadged it as a Pontiac GTO. Oh, maybe. Um, so, so are we saying a Pontiac GTO is actually Australian? That one was, yeah. <laughs> the last one was. God, it gets complicated, doesn't it? All these things oh, flying around it, the world. Doesn't it? Um, gosh, right. What have we got left then? So, yeah, it's not just the British. It's not just Europeans. The Aussies have been doing something similar as well. Um, now, we have mentioned TVR, haven't we? Because that was going to be my example of the, the only modern British car with an American V8. So Could still unless be. that car happens, yeah, that's right. Unless that car happens, it just, you just can't get these things anymore. Um, and that does seem like a shame. It does and seem why like is a that? Why, so, so why is that? Why is nobody... Well, they, the companies don't exist anymore, do they? No, but why doesn't... Do you remember... Um, you're too young to have driven one of these things, and you, and you may be glad about that. Um, the Westfield Sate. Mm. Uh, no, I've driven one Westfield, um, but not the Sate. Yeah. So the Sate, the Sate yeah. as, as, as the name possibly imp- implies, is a Westfield with a V8 in it, mm. a Rover V8, um, which, as we've already discussed, is, in fact, a Buick engine. Um, but you just don't, you know... You know, the small brick. Why don't Morgan, you know, Morgan have gone yes. over to BMW powertrains? BMW, trains. yeah, yeah. So why haven't they got little Ford, well, V8s in there? Well, probably not that little. Um, mm. I don't know. Maybe they're too heavy, or I can't imagine they're too expensive. I, I really don't know the answer to the question. Um, but you, but you are at where well, you are absolutely right. Is that something which was absolutely right from being done by so many different manufacturers in the nineteen sixties? It's just, that era seems to have gone, doesn't it? Mm, it's Completely. disappeared. It's disappeared. Yeah. But it's there's some fine, fine cars behind it. Yeah, it's just not going to come back, is it? No. We've got a listener question coming up then in a moment, just to wrap this episode up. But before we do that, I have to remind you all, and I do this every week because it's really important, to rate and review the podcast. And while you're doing it, just hit the follow button, hit the subscribe button on whichever app you're using uh, to listen to this podcast. And it means you won't miss a single episode and it also really helps us we find a new audience that way so please keep doing it um so the listener question this week comes from stefan now i'm 99 percent certain we've done this question before um but every time it's asked we'll offer a different answer so it is <laughs> one that we can do over and over again and now what we what i do have to explain is that you are not sitting in your office today you do not have your enormous library of Ooh. car books <laughs> No, I, 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 I can run across if I need to. Oh, God. 
I'm feeling so, really exposed now. I've got, I've got one. I've got one book with me. Do you think Bentley, the silent sports car, 1931 to 1939, is going to help with the answer might to be, this question? That might be too specific, a bit too niche. Blimey. That's a, that's a big book, though. It's a big um, book, yeah. Um, I've got the latest issue of Motorsport magazine, as partly uh, written by me. Um, well, that doesn't that's count That's it, either. but that's it. Other than that... Okay, but well, you've I'm got... Lonely. I reckon you've got about a minute to come up with something while I talk. So okay. Stefan just wants to get some recommendations on car books. And we've done it before. We'll do it again because, I mean, you can't tick this one off in a few minutes, can you? So um, I always recommend this same book because it's such a great read and you learn a lot. Um, Mark Donah- Donahue's The Unfair Advantage. Yeah. And it's... you Honestly, you read it and he walks you through the process that he went through of setting up racing cars because he was an engineer as well as a racing driver. He was a master at setting cars up for the track. Um, and it's part biography, almost part reference book because you yeah. really do learn so much about chassis development in racing cars and also a great deal about him and his career. Um, and you'll come away just having an enormous amount of respect for the guy. He was... A phenomenal driver, but he really understood the technical aspect of a racing car as well, like few ever have. Um, Also, Damon Hill's autobiography, um, because he—I mean, he's—he's just a great guy. Actually, I've never met him, but you get this impression just by watching him on TV in interviews or on Sky Sports F1. Um, He's a philosopher, really. He's very, very thoughtful. Um, And the bit about his biography, autobiography, that. I still remember now, and I, I was sitting up all night one night just reading it because I couldn't put it down. It's so enjoyable. But he's making the point that someone like Michael Schumacher had ferocious natural talent, and there was nothing that was going to stop him from becoming a world champion racing driver. You know, there was no force in this world that could pre- prevent that from happening. Damon, and perhaps he's being over modest here because he was clearly a sensational driver himself, but he kind of argues the point that what about those of us who didn't have that? bright, burning, ferocious talent and still won the F1 World Championship. Isn't there like something... Like his dad. Yeah, like his dad. Isn't there something to be said about that? Yeah. Um, I th- I well, as, as we've said on this podcast not very many episodes ago, in many ways that's more admirable. Yeah. Because it's like somebody else has got a really important tool for doing a job, which you don't, and you still end mm. up doing a better job than them. How mm. much more admirable is that? Because mm. it's not something that's, you know, it's not praiseworthy to be being born with you know, a massive talent. It's jammy, frankly. Mm, mm. You know, and it's, lucky, isn't it? it's what you do with what you've got that matters. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, I've got some books. Okay, go on. Interesting. The, the, the two you've nominated are both biographies, and I completely agree because, to me, although I love cars, actually, it is always the human story I look for. Um, yeah. And the unfair advantage is as much biography as it is, you know, technical treaties on the cars that he drove. Um, so, Speed with Style, which is a terrible name um, for Peter Revson's <laughs> autobiography. Well, it's part autobiography um, and part biography, because he co-wrote it with a bloke called Leon Mandel, uh, who's a superb writer. But it goes through, and it is, you know, Peter Revson was, you know, the heir to the Revlon empire. Uh, at the time of his death, he was engaged to Miss World. Um, he just seemed to have, he just seemed to be the ultimate playboy. Um, but he was anything but. He was essentially, because his brother had been killed in a racing car, if he, his family said to him, uh, if you continue to race, you're going to be cut off without a dime, and he went, fair enough. And he slogged. He was another person, um, you know, like, you know, maybe like Graham, maybe Damon, who wasn't, you know, born with an enormous natural talent, but he grafted and he grafted and he grafted. And you come across this person who is so good-looking and so wealthy and so amazing, and yet you read this incredibly honest, um, lacerating self-knowledge shown at time. Um, very modest man. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. Um, another one, Archie and the Listers, written by my friend mm. Robert Edwards, story of Archie Scott Brown. Um, Robert writes in such an incredibly engaging way. And Archie Scott Brown's story um, as really the only driver with a profound disability of his in his era to get anywhere in motor racing and who was tragically killed um far too early at spa in 1958 uh, another brilliant read um 
A third one, uh, which actually is, is, is much more like the unfair advantage, but much more modern, is Adrian Newey's book, How to Build yeah, a Car. How to Build a Car. Bro, yeah. I mean, it's, it really annoys me when people like, you know, Adrian, who were so gifted at designing cars, turn out to be a brilliant writer as well. It just makes me feel totally inadequate and redundant. Yeah. Um, what but it's that yeah. too. It's, it's, it's Adrian's life, but seen through the prism of his work. Mm. And it's mega. Mm. Um, and I just want to do two reference books, um, which are hideously expensive, both of them. Um, and I'm, you know, and I'm very lucky because I've got them both. One because it was given to me for a, um, quite a big birthday I had, and the other one was a review copy which they never asked back for. Um, so, um, Carl Lugvinson's mm. Excellence was expected. Uh, you can get there's a three volume version, there's a four volume version, but if you ever want to know anything about Porsche, it's in there. Mm. And it's right. It's correct. It's right. It's correct. It's beautifully written. It's it's very accessible, and it is. Yeah, people talk about, oh, yeah, it's the Bible for that mark. This really is the Bible for Porsche. And it goes into everything, road cars, racing cars, the people from, you know, from its very earliest days. So I think the most recent, I think what will be the final edition came out about three, four years ago. Um, and it is superb. And the final one is Janos Wimpham's Time and Two Seats, which is the history of the World Sports Car Championship from when it started, I think, 1953, up to the late 1990s. Every single race, every single result, every single... You know, if you want to know what number was on the side of a, I don't know, some weird Fiat that raced at the Miller Miller in 1948, no, 1958, uh, or whenever, it'll be in there. Uh, Mm. And I I, I look at these things as much for the awe that they inspire with me, that somebody has gone to that amount of effort to find out that amount of information and put it down in an accessible way, as I do for the information itself. And I'm just, I'm just knocked out by this stuff. Mm. Um, Mm. So yes. Fantastic. Well, there you go, Steph, and a few um, answers in there. And someone will ask this question again in a few months, and we'll answer it again with some different recommendations, or maybe just the same recommendations because we've forgotten. Who knows? Um, either way, keep your questions coming in, um, and we'll uh, end next week's podcast with another. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 